0: Hi,
1: and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Ron Suni back to the podcast. Ron is William H. Sewell, Jr., Distinguished University Professor of History at the University of Michigan. Last time I talked with Ron, we discussed the volume he co-edited with Fatma Muge titled A Question of Genocide. That volume stemmed from a decade-long collaborative investigation into the sources and course of the genocide in Armenia. Ron has now completed his own interpretive survey of the genocide, and I have to say it's excellent. The book surveys the deep history of the conflicts between the peoples of Anatolia, as well as the events and decisions that transformed that conflict into genocide during the First World War. It's intellectually rich, far richer than we'll be able to discuss in this interview. But I'm grateful to Ron for offering us the chance to begin to explore his ideas and arguments. And with that, Ron, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us on New Books and Genocide Studies. And Thank you, Kelly, for having me back again. You've been on the show before, as I said, but it's been a while. So maybe if we could just start by asking you to say a little bit about why you're so personally interested in the Armenian Genocide. I'm an Armenian, first of all. That's one thing. (laughs) I mean, I was
0: born in the United States in Philadelphia, PA. My mom was also born there. We just lost her a little while ago, 98 years old. Mm -hmm. She had a long run. Uh, Her father died at 100, and his whole family, he he had emigrated to the United States in 1999. His whole family perished in the genocide in the city of Yozgat. But as I was growing up, uh, the genocide was not a central topic. There was no serious hatred of the Turks or anything like that. In the family, both sides of my mother's family, uh, my grandmother had left after the 1894-96 massacres in Diabakir, uh, the Hamidian massacres. So they had all escaped these events. Uh, Eventually, some relatives came to America and we met people who knew more about it. But it wasn't as if I was raised in a very nationalist home. My father's family was from Russian Armenia, from Tiflis, from Karabakh. And uh, they, of course, didn't have any genocidal experience. And they were on the left, politically on the left. My grandfather was a member of the Communist Party. Armenian Cell, Philadelphia, more more a patriotic organization than Marxist-Leninist, but still, <laughs> they can get into trouble for that, too. Um, so we were raised, you know, it very sort of progressively and more favorable to the Soviet Union and not particularly nationalistic, not particularly hating uh, Turks or anything of the sort. But uh, when, in fact, I became professor of Armenian history, I was the first holder of the Alex Manukin Chair in Modern Armenian History at the University of Michigan in uh, uh, 1981. I thought I better begin to learn more about this. Uh, And at first, I didn't even use the word genocide because I wasn't sure yet. And that's a very controversial and technical term. Mm -hmm. I said massacres and deportations, which is also accurate. But then I was heavily criticized by Armenians and Armenian scholars like Vahak and Dadrian. But as I continued my investigations, it became clear to me that this was genocide. If the term genocide has any meaning. And we'll talk about that, I imagine, a bit later. Uh, it, this constitutes the first major uh, non colonial genocide, first colonia- genocide in or near Europe uh, of, the, of the 20th century.
1: So, so you call the book, and, and it starts, the, the title is They Can Live in the Desert But Nowhere Else, and with a subtitle A History of the Armenian Genocide. But it starts centuries, maybe even a millennium before the genocide itself. Why, Why start that far back? My idea was
0: to give a rounded history of the conflict between Turks, Muslims more generally, and Armenians. And to work against the notion that these were two fully formed national communities, nations in the modern sense, that came inevitably into clash. And I wanted to show through the long durée of the history that Armenians lived quite well within the Ottoman Empire uh, Empire, uh, for many centuries, uh, that they were a different kind of community than the one they would become. I call it an ethno-religious community before they became more nationalist and something like a modern nation. Uh, And the Turks were very late in coming to a nationalist ideology, really not until the very end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. So I wanted to give that background and all the complexity and development of these various peoples, Kurds, Turks, Armenians, and to some degree Assyrians, uh, those
1: four are the ones that play the major role in the genocide. You you start out with a chapter on empire, uh, and and, and mostly the Ottoman Empire. Why, Why was it important that the Ottoman Empire was, in fact, an empire. One of the things I'm working uh, uh, within is a
0: a sort of new paradigm of uh, imperial history more generally and Ottoman history more particularly. And that's called sometimes the imperial turn or the imperial paradigm. And the idea is that rather than writing the history of these empires, whether it's the Romanov Empire, and I just finished a book with my colleague, Valerie Kibelson, called Russia's Empires, or the Ottoman Empire, uh, these empires, including the Soviet Empire, were states within which there were maybe not fully formed nations, as we understand it, that came into uh, uh, conflict with one another. In many ways, empires were crucibles, cradles, in which new nations were made. And so I wanted to talk about, in the genocide particularly, not so much as a clash of nations, That's a very popular way of looking at genocide. That is, rival nationalisms, struggles over a single territory, or the creation of a nation-state, which would be the result of this genocide, but was not its, I think, intention. But rather, as the desperate attempt of the Ottoman Empire, under the young Turks, to create a new kind of empire, a multinational right, polity, would still be one in which Arabs and other nationalities, Jews, and so forth, would exist, but which would be more Turkic, more Islamic, and would get rid of elements like Armenians, who the young Turks came to understand as subversive, as an existential threat to their existence.
1: So so let's unpack some of those things a little bit. To what degree did Armenians in the 19th century regard themselves as a nationality? Armenians, uh, in the 19th century, in the Ottoman Empire,
0: uh, yeah. were Ottomans, but they were also of a different millet, or a religious mm-hmm. community, ethno-religious community. They were members of the Ermeni milleti, the Armenian millet, and they had their own institutions. They had their own patriarch. They even had a prison of their own. They had a constitution eventually, after the 1860s. Uh, so they existed as a separate community but within the larger edifice of the Ottoman Empire. And uh, they they could both have, I make this point in the book, an Ottoman identity, that is, many of them spoke Turkish, many of them didn't even know Armenian, Uh, they worked in Ottoman society, they traded, and yet they had a different religion, they were Christians, one of the oldest Christian communities, uh, and the majority of people around them were Muslim, right? Usually Sunni Muslim. Uh, So they, they had this complex relationship with this empire. But the point I'm trying to make is one shouldn't do Ottoman history as if it's the history, inevitably, of conflicting nationalities, of nations as if they've existed for all time from primordial ooze on, but rather something that's being generated and changing and readjusting within the complexity of an imperial setting.
1: So, so one of the things that at least some people, um, 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 uh, Turks and other people in the Ottoman Empire, granting, granting what you just said, there are some people who think of the Armenians as a nation and some Armenians who think of themselves as a nation. How, to what extent, I guess, is that perception prevalent in the 19th century, as opposed to this older sense of, of an ethno-religious community within a broader empire of such communities?
0: That's a good question and a complex question, right? Because mm-hmm. what's happening in the 19th century is a shift and even a struggle among Armenians uh, uh, as to their identity and how much they are a religious community and how much now they are an ethnic community, Right. The complexity is because Armenians, like Jews and many others, are ethno-religious. That is, there's a, a confluence between their language, their idea of where they came from, their own national myths, and their religion, the fact that they're Christians. But over time, in the 19th century, there's a struggle between, let's say, the older clerical elites, the church, that emphasizes the religious side, And newer secular elites, liberals, later radicals, socialists, who talk more and more about the Armenians as a nation, as an ethnic nation, right? And they've adopted these ideas of nationalism, what I call the discourse of the nation, the idea that the world is inevitably divided into different nations. It's been that for all time. And these nations ought to have not only a culture of their own, but a polity of their own, right? Modern nationalism is about the bringing together of culture and politics, mm-hmm. and each cultural or linguistic group ought to have some political manifestation, whether it be autonomy or uh, or a, an independent state. That idea is growing among Armenians, but it 's not an idea that seizes everybody it 's not an idea that comes with mother's milk uh, it 's something indeed that has to be taught to people, and the Armenian radicals intellectuals tried to do that over time. So you find more and more Armenians as you get to the 20th century who are thinking in these more national or nationalistic terms. But but it's still complex, it's still evolving, mm-hmm. and it doesn't eliminate their own identity with the empire, the land, the country, the state in which they live.
1: So, so yeah, so two follow-ons. One is, how, how is that? Increasing sense of nationality perceived by other Armenians who who still see themselves as in an older role in the Ottoman Empire. Uh,
0: in fact, many Armenians would have a, sh- a number of different identities. Let's say yeah. an Armenian peasant or a craftsman out in eastern Anatolia in what was historic Armenia, right? Uh, those people would identify maybe with their locality. And I think they have a very strong sense of, uh, where they came from. Uh, they always talk about being from Ayntep or from Marash. Uh, you know, yes, Van et I am from Van. So that was an important identity with their profession. Their very name, in fact, uh, is, is, it usually comes from their family name from a Turkish, uh, uh, name for a, a profession. You know, Kazanji, Kazanjan a pot maker, uh, Tascan, uh, someone who works with, with stone, a mason, or something like that, Terzian, from Terzi, the Turkish word for for tailor, all of those things. Most Armenians don't even realize that they're having Turkish <laughs> around with them, but that's, that's, that's the, the fact. So there are many different identities that, that conflict with one another, and religion is part of it. And by the way, people in their daily lives don't live their ethnicity all the time. They're not always thinking, I'm Armenian, he's Kurdish, or whatever. That's the, you know, that's the milk seller over there. And I hope he brings me fresh milk. So I'm trying to play down the, the, the salience of a nationalist sense of nationality, which has so pervaded our history, Kelly, as you must be <laughs> aware, so that we tell history as if it's nationalist stories, rather than seeing them in this more complex way, and in this case, an imperial story.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, the flip side of that, of course, is the set of identities available to those people in the Ottoman Empire. So, so maybe you could say something a little bit about what, what stresses the Ottoman Empire is undergoing in the 19th century and, and what kinds of identities uh, Ottomans see as, as available and productive for them.
0: The Ottoman Empire was, of course, known in the West as the sick man of Europe. It was constantly in trouble. Though, by the way, it lasted hundreds and hundreds of years. So they must have been doing something right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they only collapse uh, in in war when they're defeated in war, uh, a war, World War I, which they foolishly entered and didn't need to enter. Uh, so that's, that's a problem. But in the 19th century, they were in enough economic, political uh, trouble. They were losing pieces of their empire to relatively uh, ambitious and greedy European imperial states, right, over, over time, and to uh, nationalist elites and movements in the Balkans and Greece and Serbia and elsewhere, that they were troubled, that they had to think about what can we do to strengthen ourselves in this very vicious international competition between the great powers. And so they engage in a number of efforts to reform themselves, in one way or another, to, you might say, modernize the empire. Most notably, in the middle of the century, from roughly the 1830s to the 1870s, they engaged in a reform program called Tanzimat, which is sort of like the Destroika, sort of reform. And that idea was to make all of the subjects of the empire sort of equal, regardless of their ethnicity or their religion. Uh, And that worked out for a while. There were reforms, some of them imposed by the West, et But by the time Abdul Hamid II came to power in 1876, uh, Abdul Hamid, the famous bloody Sultan, Mm -hmm. he developed a new idea of modernizing the empire, which was greater centralization of power and an alliance between the major Muslim peoples, namely the Turks, and the Kurds. And he formed... Hamidiya regiments uh, made up of these Turkish tribesmen in eastern Anatolia to do two things, guard the eastern frontier from Iran, and two, to subdue and keep in place and discipline the non-Muslim populations of that area, most importantly, the Armenians. And then there was another effort after that under the young Turks to reinstate constitutionalism, to work through a parliament. Armenians... Greeks and Jews were very enthusiastic about this, but eventually uh, they failed in that and they turned to the most drastic of efforts to reform, we can say, and modernize, we can say, their empire. That is by genocide. That is the physical elimination of a major population, which they conceived as a threat.
1: One of the points you make in the book is that this this involvement in these other of these other countries, France and Britain and Russia, uh, is is important politically, but also important in the way leaders, uh, Ottoman leaders and and some Ottoman peoples and and some Armenian leaders perceive their position, the position of Armenians within the Ottomans. So, so maybe you could sketch out why, what what the other, the, the Russian and the British and the French, what their interest in the Ottoman Empire is and and how how they became so politically influential in the empire
0: this is the 19th century an age we call the age of nationalism but it might more properly be called the age of imperialism right of empire and these great powers whether it was the romanovs in russia or the habsburg in austro-hungary or the hohenzollerns in the new german empire or the british or the french which were republican liberal states, uh, these were, this was a moment in the 19th century of aggrandizement, of growth, of imperial conquest, of colonization. Uh, and that would proceed, by the way, right through World War I into the interwar period. We sometimes exaggerate the formation of nation states or keep pushing them backwards, when in fact, the empires continue in, to be quite strong. The sun doesn't set on the British Empire in the interwar period. It sets only after World War II when the two major anti-colonial powers, the United States and the Soviet Union, in some ways empires themselves, push for decolonization. So this is an age of empire. And it's a kind of zero-sum game. If Britain wins, France loses. If Russia wins, uh, the Ottomans lose. If the uh, Austrians win, the, the Ottomans lose. So they're all competing, they're picking off pieces. And it turns out that the Ottomans are in their their internal development and in their military might generally weaker than Russia and the European powers, so they are losing over time. And each of the great powers is afraid in the in the Ottoman setting, somewhat one of them will gain advantage. Primarily the Russians, so Britain and France will go to war against Russia to protect the Ottoman Empire in. The Crimean War uh, of the 1850s. Then, uh, in when Russia wins a war in 1877, 78 against the Ottomans, the Germans, the French, the the British, and others will gather in Berlin to prevent the Russians from winning and holding on to their maximal victories in that war. So it's about inner war rivalries, inner imperial rivalries. <clears throat> that makes the Ottomans so vulnerable. And remember, it's large, it's in the Balkans, in a former Ottoman colony, Bosnia, Herzegovina, where World War I begins with the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, right, in 1914. So this is the area uh, that's going to uh, ultimately spark a huge imperial conflict, uh, namely World War I.
1: So so in in how would so how would you characterize then, as kind of a bridge from this deep history to, to the more immediate past of, of the genocide, how would you characterize the relationships between the Ottoman Empire and Armenians at in the eighteen eighties, eighteen nineties, early nineteen hundreds?
0: That's a very important question. So Armenians before Abdul Hamid II were known as the Milet Isadika, or the, the uh, faithful Milet, the loyal Milet. They, unlike the Greeks, or the Serbs, or the Bulgarians, were not revolting against the Ottoman Empire. Right? But then things change in the uh, late 1870s. When Russia wins this war in 1877-78, the Armenians, hoping for reform, hoping for protection from their own state, the Ottoman state, send a delegation to the Russians, who, by the way, were camped just outside of Istanbul, out of Constantinople, of roughly where the airport, uh, the Ottoman, Ottoman airport is today. That's how close they got to Istanbul. Uh, and they petitioned them, please give us some reforms as well. Protect us, force our government to make changes, to protect us against the predations of the Kurds and others who are, stealing and raping Armenian women, taking our cattle, uh, taking our land, etc. And the Russians agreed in the Treaty of San Stefano, which they imposed on the Ottomans, that they would stay in Armenia, uh, Armenia, Turkish-Armenia, Ottoman-Armenia, and they would enforce these reforms. But then the Congress of Berlin, under the leadership of Otto von Bismarck, reversed that in the Treaty of Berlin, and the Russians had to leave, and the reforms were never actually implemented. But what this did was change the view of the Armenians. Because the Armenians had gone outside uh, and appealed to foreigners in order to get advantages within the Ottoman Empire. Now, it turns out, actually, the Jews did the same kind of thing. There was no trouble with that. They had a better relationship with the Ottomans. But the Armenians were seen as the thin edge of the wedge that would be used particularly by Russia to undermine, divide, disintegrate the Ottoman Empire. So the Russians were, were themselves at times using Armenians as a kind of proxy. By the way, they more energetically used the Kurds as a proxy. Mm-hmm. Then alliances with the Kurds, the Kurds didn't suffer this same perception uh, as uh, enemies of the state. The Armenians, as Christians, as connected, as as victims uh, of the regime that were seen, let's say, by Britain under Gladstone, William Gladstone, Prime Minister, uh, as people who had suffered, uh, and so forth, they were always a subject of concern of the West, Russia, in what's been called the Armenian
1: Question. So you point to a couple, couple, oh maybe I should say you highlight two specific kind of episodes or moments of oppression. One, the Hamidian massacres of the 18, mid 1890s, the other, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, Adana uh, in 1909. Right. And and you suggest that they're somehow different. Can you talk a little bit about these two and what they say about uh, evolving relationships between the Ottomans and the Armenians? Right. This, uh,
0: that, the discussion is against the background of the dominant historiographical interpretations of the genocide. So let me say a word about that, please. Basically, I'm arguing against the view that the genocide was a struggle between two nationalisms. This is the view of, say, um, uh, some many many different people. Um, Bernard Lewis of of, uh, of Princeton University was probably the most eminent. And also, I argue against the view that it was a religious clash or a religious uh, uh, um, conflict between Muslims and Christians. Those elements are there, but that's not what I see as primary. One of the ways in which people have talked about the genocide is of some essential, deep Turkish or Islamic characteristic of antagonism toward Christians and willingness to use violence. So that the genocide is not a singular event, but is connected and preceded by a series of other massacres that took place in the Ottoman Empire. Most importantly, the Hamidian massacres of 1894-96, in which some hundreds of thousands, maybe as many as 300,000 Armenians perished, including, by the way, members of my mother's mother's Mm -hmm. family. Or, secondly, that it was the result, and you can see that there was another uh, massacre event, in 1909, in the city of Adana, in eastern Anatolia, in Cilicia on the Mediterranean, in which about 20,000 Armenians were killed. And then you have the genocide of 1915, 1916, in which hundreds of thousands, perhaps as many as 850,000 or a million or more, uh, perished or displaced, destroyed, etc. So, the one view is that these are all organically connected, that they're part of a pattern and this is essentially the argument that the terrible Turk is a genocide uh, type, is a genocide and, and a killer, and this was inevitable. And I'm arguing against that. And by looking closely at the different massacres, I make the point that the Hamidian massacres carried out by Abdul Hamid were in a sense what I called exemplary repression. That is a conservative effort to keep Armenians in their place to discipline them, not to eliminate them, but to keep them subordinate to the regime. The 1909 massacres in Adana are much better referred to as an urban riot, as a kind of anti-Armenian pogrom by conservative elements in and around that city that feared that the Armenians, after the young Turk 1908 revolution, were becoming too visible, too haughty, too proud, too politically uh, salient that they had to be, again, destroyed in some way. The genocide of 1915-1916 is a far more radical revolutionary event. It is an effort by the Young Turk government to eliminate, to render completely impotent the Armenians, to uh, completely eradicate any possible threat from one of their subject peoples.
1: Yeah, maybe parenthetically, or a brief, brief pause in our larger discussion, I first ran across this argument that you made in an essay oh, 10 years or so ago, 15 years or so ago, um, in a set of essays on genocide and mass violence. And I and I got the feeling at that point, and maybe I'm wrong, that you were you were in the process of exploring your ideas about the genocide. So So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how how you've gone about this process of, of trying to engage this issue, what it means for a historian to kind of wrestle with this evidence and try and come to some conclusions. How did that work for you?
0: You're very good at this, Kelly. You have <laughs> noticed the differences. And it's true. I think any good historian, uh, in fact, evolves over time, right? So uh, I would, I, I one of my early essays uh, would have been about The ideologies of the of the Young Turks, perhaps uh, nationalism as as influencing uh, leaders of of the Young Turks, all of that's still in there to some extent. But that was a major understanding. Then I would say, as someone who sort of thinks of himself on the left, heavily influenced by Marxism, etc., I was very interested in social historical explanations. The social ecology and environment of Eastern Anatolia are still in there. There were land conflicts. Uh, There were the problems between settled Armenians and nomadic Kurds uh, and and, uh, uh, Turkish townspeople, etc. So you could, that would be another element that would help to to exacerbate and and increase tensions in the area. But then I went to, for 10 years or 11 years, I was a political scientist. I moved from the University of Michigan to the University of Chicago. It was a wonderful adventure. Mm -hmm. I was asked to be in the political science department because they were very interested in ethnic conflict, in questions of nationalism in the Soviet Union. I'm basically a Soviet historian, right? Mm -hmm. And I deal with nationality and ethnic conflict and things like that. And so I go there and I'm confronted by the dominant paradigm, at least at that time, maybe still, in political science, of rational choice theory. Mm -hmm. That is, human beings are basically motivated by uh, a search for uh, the maximum utility, that is, to realize their preferences and get the most out of things. That is, some kind of economic argument, or maybe it's about power, but it's maximizing your utilities, right? And you act rationally toward these goals. And I thought, as a historian, there I am in a political science department, a rather eclectic and wonderfully rich one, uh, that this seemed a rather desiccated view of human motivation. Of course people are rational uh, under certain circumstances. Mm -hmm. But they're also driven, and I don't mean that they're irrational in this way, they're driven by emotions as well. And that indeed, when I started to read more and more at Chicago about psychology and and neuropsychology, I came to the understanding that emotions and rationality work together. They're not antipodes, they're not Opposed to each other, that there's no rationality without the preference that you desire your goal, and it could be ambition, it could be greed, it could be whatever. But th- there's something you want, and uh, it could be long life or, or something. So, so when you get into the realm of desires of wants, you're already talking about things that are emotionally uh, 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 inflected, and so I, in this book, uh, and. In my last works on the genocide, I've come up with this notion that I needed to explore the mentality of the people who committed the genocide. They're the ones who decided. And you could do a completely strategic, rational argument. Armenians are a threat. We get rid of the threat. We save the state. National security. Very potent argument. Americans make it all the time. We use drones. We bomb countries, we uh, you know, prolific, uh, profligately invade places, all in the name of national security. But I thought, there's something else here. Why were Armenians conceived, perceived as an existential threat? Why did it move from the loyal millet to mm-hmm. the uh, existential threat? And there you needed to, when you investigate the mentality of the young Turk leadership of Enver, and Talat, and the small groups of people in the Committee of Union of Progress, who made the decisions to take this extraordinary act, and carry out this policy, ruthlessly, you needed to bring in their affective disposition, that's what I called it, their affective disposition, that is, the emotional environment in which they both understood the world, constructed themselves, and constructed the Armenians as an existential threat, and upon that, uh, upon that understanding, within that disposition, it became rational, indeed essential, to murder hundreds of thousands of people. And so that's how I moved from more environmental, ideological, uh, social, uh, historical understandings, all of which are part of it, because all of them feed in as does the international situation that we spoke about earlier, into the creation of this affective disposition. But people do not, it seems to me, simply act or are simply motivated by structural conditions. Uh, they, are they, uh, let's say, poverty or a sense of danger or whatever? It's how they give meaning, how they understand, and how they feel about things. That is the mediating factor between those earlier causal elements and action. Hmm.
1: So what happens... Does that uh, make sense? No, it does. Um, you, you stress in the book, and, and in ways that I'd never thought about before, how, how the events immediately before World War I contributed to this. Yes. Um, so, so you talk about the Balkan Wars and, and why those matter. Yes,
0: it's very important. Uh, As we were carrying on our 15 years of discussion in what we call the workshop for Armenian-Turkish scholarship, WATS, where we brought together Fatma Mugegir, Chek and I, and others, uh, Girard Lebaridyan, brought together Armenians, Turks, Kurds, Americans, everybody we could get to discuss the genocide. As we were working uh, toward understanding these horrible events of 1915, it increasingly became noticeable, imperative, to talk about the Balkan Wars. So let me go back a second. 1908, the young Turks, a small group of military officers, took over the Ottoman Empire. They had a very loose and precarious hold on power. But eventually... Uh, These guys, who started out as constitutionalists, as modernists, close friends of the Armenians, supported by the Armenian political parties, etc., they increasingly became suspicious of non-Turkic elements, including, by the way, Kurds and Arabs. And they thought the empire should be increasingly Muslim and increasingly Turkic. In 1912, 1913, there's a series of wars, the First and Second Balkan Wars, in which essentially the Ottoman Empire loses its Balkan holdings. It loses all but a tiny foothold around Edirne uh, in the Balkans. Mm-hmm. So, And that is catastrophic for the young Turks. Many of the young Turk leaders, Talat, Enver, indeed Kemal Atatürk, are from the Balkans, from Salonika, which was is now Greece, of course, or those areas. And... They suffer, the, the Turks and Muslims of the Balkans suffer at the hands of the Christians, and indeed some Muslims like Albanians, who throw these Turks out of the Balkans, and hundreds of thousands of them emigrate to Anatolia, where they become an increasing problem for the Armenians and other locals there. And that loss of the Balkans, and the shift of the Balkans as the ideal homeland of the Ottomans, which it had been earlier. To the, to Anatolia, which now becomes the imagined homeland of the Ottomans, rather than, say, Central Asia, which is in the hands of the Russians and where the Turks actually originally came from. Uh, that plays a huge role. And I show in the book, thanks to wonderful scholarship by my, uh, my friend Doan Chetinkaya and others, that during that young Turk period, after 1908, the feelings about Christians in general, first foreign Christians, then Greeks, then Armenians, becomes more and more uh, volatile and vicious. Uh, And visceral feelings of revenge, of uh, retribution uh, can be found in the literature, in the stories of Omer Sefedin, a very powerful and popular Turkish writer, in pamphlets in demonstrations, in the boycott campaigns. And those feelings give us a real insight into how this affected disposition uh, is being generated, which only is then exacerbated once the war, that is World War one breaks out.
1: Yeah, so what role does the, the, the war actually play in this decision?
0: In much of the scholarship, it's thought that World War One is simply the uh, event that is used as an excuse, as a cover for the genocide, which is planned long in advance. My own work indicates, and much of the work of Watts, that the genocide was not planned long in advance. What did exist long in advance, at least through the early 20th century, is this affective disposition, this view that something had to be done about these Armenians, and some leaders, of course, getting this idea. What they would actually do, however, is only really decided. In the early days of the war. And the precipitating event there is a colossal defeat of the Ottoman Empire with the losses of some 40 or 50,000 soldiers in a battle at Sadiqamish against the Russians on the Caucasian front. This was Enver Pasha. He's one of the three major leaders, Palat Enver and Djemal Pasha, of the Young Turks, who took dictatorial power in January 1913. Uh, Enver Pasha in uh, late 1914, decided to send this huge army out and and fight the Russians. And he did pretty well, but ultimately it was a disaster. His soldiers were freezing in the snows out there. Sarikamish is now the ski resort in Mm -hmm. modern Turkey, very treacherous territory. The Russians beat them. And as a result of this, Enver himself, even fearing that he might be now blamed for this defeat, there and others say, no, the reason we lost was because of the Armenians. They are traitors. They had troops on the other side. Now, the Armenians, of course, were a population that straddled the Russo-Turkish frontier in the Caucasus. And Armenian volunteers in the Caucasus, Russian Armenians, subjects of the Tsars, about 4,000 or so, fought with the Russian army against the Turks. But what's often left out, and what I emphasize in the book, is that tens of thousands of Armenians from the Ottoman Empire donned Ottoman uniforms and fought on the Ottoman side against the Russians. A few defected, including some prominent leaders and at least one parliamentary uh, deputy. And, of course, those defections, within the context of the affective disposition, you're already predispositioned to see the Armenians as traitors, of course, was exaggerated and mentioned, while the loyalty of these Armenian soldiers, some of whom died at Sadi was largely buried and forgotten.
1: <laughs>
0: In what I would call the genocide, besides some earlier massacres and back and forth between Russians and Turks and Persians, etc., the first event of the genocide is the disarming of Armenian soldiers, the, the removal of their uniforms, they're turning them into labor battalions, Amela tabulata in Turkish, uh, and forcing them to work on the railroads, etc., and in, in the back, and eventually murdering them. Thus, as I say in the book, removing the muscle of the Armenian community. I could so, go on because stage well, two, of course, you go ahead. that that they begin then after this killing of the of many of the soldiers, they begin to remove the, those who are left in the towns, uh, first men, they usually take them outside of the city and they, they chop them to pieces or shoot them or push them off cliffs into the rivers or whatever. And then they have a more uh, less resistant population of older people, children and women who they send off in caravans, basically death marches through Anatolia, presumably to end up, as many of them do, in the deserts of Syria. They're going to end up in Derzor, in Raqqa. These terms should be familiar to us all now. These are the headquarters of ISIS. That's where they went. And then there, they were also massacred as well. While these events are occurring, while these these massacres, killings, and and deportations are taking place, in some few places, three or four, Musadag, in the city of Van, um, uh, Urfa, Shabin, uh, Karisat, and so forth, a few of them, there are rebellions or resistances to the massacres. The most important is in April 1915 in Van, in the city of Van. But uh, Van is a city which had either a majority or a plurality of Armenians. It was a very important city at the time, way in the east of Turkey, near the almost near the uh, Iranian border. And the Armenians there organized a the self-defense and waited for the Russians to come and And rescue them, which they actually eventually did for a while, and then the rest of the von Armenians had to flee and go with the Russians back to the Caucasus uh, once that event occurred again confirming in the minds of the young Turks that the Armenians are rebels, they're leading an insurrection, then a very important event occurred on april twenty fourth nineteen fifteen april twenty fourth being the day that we recognize as the and Kemara, Kemar, 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 well, uh, uh, commemorated as the day of the genocide. On April 24th, they arrested several hundred Armenian intellectuals, politicians, parliament deputies, journalists, etc. That is, they removed the brain of the Armenian nation and they deported them and killed most of them. So the genocide takes place in different phases, disarming of soldiers arresting of intellectuals, killing of the men, deporting of women and children. Uh, And in some ways, I want to say just two more things. One, it's a gendered genocide. So women are more likely to survive than men. But also women are forced often to convert to Islam and become either sex slaves or family members or servants of Turks, Kurds, Arabs, and others. The genocide, secondly, takes place in sort of three different ways. One, physical dispersion, deportation. They can live in the desert, but nowhere else, right? Mm-hmm. Talat says, title of the book. Secondly, physical murder, mass killings. The record is indisputable, right? Uh, that, that at the hands of the Turkish state, the army, the Teşkilat and irregular forces, Hundreds of thousands of people are cut down. And thirdly, what's often forgotten, uh, the third leg of the genocide is cultural genocide, that is, forced assimilation, Islamization of women and children. Now we know that hundreds of thousands of Armenian women and children became Muslims, and now, today, they are reemerging in Turkey. It's an extraordinary event. We had a conference in Istanbul a year ago, on Islamicized Armenians. And these people are coming out and saying, my grandmother was Armenian. And one wonderful woman, a a lawyer named Fetia Chatin, wrote a book called Ananem, My Grandmother, in which she tells the story of her grandmother, who was, in fact, Armenian, but only confessed this to her granddaughter as she was dying, and told her the whole story of the genocide as she remembered Uh it. That book became a bestseller in Turkey. And now, uh, these uh, ah. more and more people, uh, Alevis, Muslims, Kurds, Turks, are coming out and saying, Yes, we're proud we had this background. Uh, and we were, in fact, we uh-huh. are
1: Armenian. Well, you mentioned several people who were involved in, in making the decision uh, about, uh, to, to, to conduct the genocide. And and that's generally the impression I get from your book is that it's a relatively small group of central leaders who are propelling policy forward. So I guess it's a two part question. Number one, is that correct? And number two, how much difficulty did they get it with people in the middle and lower levels actually going along with those decisions?
0: Another good question, Kelly. Very good. Yes. Uh, I have been criticized sometimes by saying that this is a top down event, that it's largely the elite, but, More and more, maybe it was my political science decade or something, I'm convinced (laughs) politics takes place upstairs. It takes place largely at the elite. And then occasionally, in some events, like revolutions, ordinary people also get involved, or maybe election campaigns at some level after some important decisions are taken at the top, et cetera. hope that doesn't sound too cynical. But the decisions, (laughs) the ultimate decisions were made at the top for the reasons I think I've outlined. But then the point is, can they get people to follow? And of course, that affective disposition, that view of Armenians was also available more generally in the population. Now, we have many instances of what you could call good Turks and good Kurds and good Arabs who refused to go along, who refused to carry out the killings, or who protected and hid Armenians, Assyrians, and other victims. So it, didn't, it wasn't spread that badly, but you you could take a case like the city of Diyarbakir, which is now you know the de facto capital of Turkish Kurdistan. You could take a city like Diyarbakir, and you could see that there the local vali, the local governor, instigated, carried out, ruthlessly uh, uh, initiated, and maintained the killings in that particular place. Uh, so he's he. He himself, a Circassian or a, church, uh, a church, uh got Cherchez or church, uh, Circassian elements to work with him in that killing. Uh, so, you know, sometimes it, there would be resistance. And there were people who thought killing Armenians like this, this is, you know, against Islam. Uh, and this isn't where Islam is a religion of peace. And Armenians are recognized as people of the book. They're not to be murdered. And others took a more kind of jihadist position uh, and, in fact, uh, carried out kind of religious warfare or ethno-national warfare against their victims.
1: Well, most people, if they've read any primary source, they've they've read Ambassador Morgenthau's book. Can you have a, a nice little discussion of that? Could you talk a little bit about him and what he tried to do and who he was?
0: Well, I'm I'm a, I'm pro Morgenthau. I, I I know there's some now some more criticism of him. The, I tried to be uh, uh, balanced about my treatment of the book. There are several things that can be said. One, the book is a valuable, invaluable document. Morgenthau uh, himself, of Jewish faith, was appointed ambassador to Constantinople by Woodrow Wilson. This was sort of the Jewish post at the time. At first, Morgenthau. Didn't want to take it, but he eventually did, and so he was there as the genocide is taking place, and he reports very accurately back to the the um, uh, State Department in cables, in letters, etc. What's going on, and many of those uh, cables then become part of the book Ambassador Morgan Fowl's diary. So it's an invaluable source. Secondly, uh, it is the template for much of the work that's gone after. The book was so important that it set the parameters of what we understand. And it's powerful in that way. But thirdly, I also try to show that it is a book written during World War I uh, at a time when America was entering the war against Germany that's heavily inflected also by anti German propaganda. So that uh, it's a book of its own time. And a good historian has to read through it and take what's valuable and understand that there are also you know, contemporary prejudices and political necessities that also play a role. That doesn't invalidate what's true about the book. It just says it has to be used in a more sensitive and critical way. He over-emphasizes the role of the Germans and Ambassador uh, von, uh, Wangenheim. Uh, but otherwise, what he's actually telling is there, if you don't want to read the book, go to the archives, go to the Library of Congress, look at his archive, go to the State Department, it's all there, it's all been published. Mm -hmm. The most damaging source um, are these archival documents, I should mention at this point, the German archival documents, Mm -hmm. which have been published, they're available now in English. Um, Germany was, after all, an ally of the young Turks and of the Ottomans at that moment, and they were writing about the genocide Mm -hmm. and what was taking place. So we have those documents. Anybody wants to read it? Anyone has doubts about genocide? They're available, easily available. So what are the open
1: questions left about this? I think there's, as with the
0: uh, Judea side of the Nazis, as with the Holocaust itself, there's no ultimate smoking gun. That is, there's no written order that says, you know, kill all the Armenians or something like that. Of course, you don't really need that. There's so much evidence. There are so many cables. There's Talat's own bookkeeping of how many Armenians have been killed here, mm-hmm. how many have been killed there. By the way, published in modern Turkish, in Turkey, available to anyone who really wants to read it. Huh. Uh, these kinds of things. It's mentioned in the book. Uh, the kinds of work that Talat, Taner Akjam has done uh, on, and others on these documents. Raymond Kevorkian's big book. There's The, the, the scale, the scale, uh, outlines the details of the genocide we have that the question then that still remains open is a kind of semantic question it's an important one, it's about is it genocide or how do what do we mean by genocide mm-hmm. and there I would say genocide, the term has suffered in two ways for some this is largely a position no longer taken that seriously, for some Genocide only applies to the Holocaust. Yeah. And there were scholars of the Holocaust, I think they're a minority if they still exist, who said nothing is comparable to the Holocaust, only the Holocaust is genocide. Let's leave it to that. that. But on the other side, there's another tendency, and that is everything is genocide. You kill a lot of people, it's genocide. So the Great Purges, the Ukrainian Holodomor of the early 30s, um, uh, all mass killings become genocide. And it seems to me that devalues the term and the specificity of genocide that we ought to maintain. Now, you're a scholar of genocide and you're interviewing a lot of people. You're going to find all these different views. My own view is, let's look at the definition we have, imperfect as it is, from the United Nations Convention on Genocide. And there, genocide is largely what you might call ethnocide. It is the deliberate killing of an ethno-religious group or an ethnic, religious, cultural group—a people. So I say in the book, genocide is not the killing of people; it is the killing of a people. And the other problem with that definition, of course, in in the UN thing, is that it says in whole or in part. The way I deal with that is saying the genocide is an effort to render this ethno-religious community, this cultural group, this people, impotent, unable to reproduce itself in the old way. If you think about it, the Holocaust was unsuccessful in eradicating all Jews. Eventually, as a result of the Holocaust, the state of Israel would be formed. The Armenian Genocide was unsuccessful in destroying all Armenians. There is an independent state of Armenia, today, and there's a huge Armenian diaspora, as there is a culturally conscious Jewish diaspora. But what the genocides in those two cases did was eliminate a civilization in its place. There is no vibrant Yiddish culture, as there was in interwar Poland and Russia before the Holocaust. And there is no vivid, vital, existing Armenian civilization, only ruins of thousands of of buildings and churches and monuments and monasteries in eastern Anatolia, in historic Armenia today. So they did succeed in destroying that civilization, uh, those civilizations in those two places. That's
1: genocide. uh, A more personal
0: question, maybe.
1: You point out in the introduction uh, that shortly before your wife uh, became ill and passed. She persuaded you to travel to the sites you discuss in the book. I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what what that trip was like for you. It was a trip I actually didn't want to take. I thought it was still
0: too dangerous, and that we'd wait. And luckily, Armina, my wonderful wife, said no. That we have to go. Maybe she knew something, or maybe she had some questions about her own near near death. Uh, and so we went, and we. Went with a group of this particular trip. We went with a group of architects, uh, Armenian architects, and visited sites all along the Euphrates River. We went from Erzinjan to to Malatya, intervening uh, in, in, inside, seeing places like um, like the city of of um, of Arapir, uh, uh, um, my my wife's uh, family from that town, and so forth. And so we revisited uh, these different places um, and it was quite extraordinary. Uh, And later we made a second trip with Armenia. Uh, We went uh, from Ani, the ancient capital of Armenia, uh, to Van, the city I mentioned, all the way to Diabakir, where my family came from. Mm -hmm. And those trips were extraordinary and important uh, and gave us a sense two important things. One, that there really was and Armenia out there. It's mm-hmm. now in ruins. And secondly, that Armenia has become Kurdistan. And that the effects of the genocide are still real.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But the Turks did to the Armenians uh, created not a completely homogeneous Turkish nation state, but a state in which a large minority, tens you know, fifteen million people probably of Kurds now live and occupy what had been historic Armenia. And they have their own problems now with the Turkish state, which at this moment, as we're talking, are surrounding certain Kurdish cities, uh, shooting people, carrying on a war, which in America is largely unnoticed. Because Turkey is our ally, we need their base, etc. This is a horrible event. The Kurds themselves, the other thing I learned was, Kurds, from Kars in the north to Diyarbakir in the south, all now recognize the genocide. They tell you, we know it happened. We know our ancestors did it. Some say even, maybe this is why we're now suffering, because of what we did to the Armenians. That's a new discourse. They say, we're sorry we did it. They say the Turks made us do it. They try to get themselves off the hook, perhaps, there. They apologize for it, and they see themselves as kind of allies with the Armenians against the viciousness of the Turkish state, which is now carrying out these the depredations against the Kurdish people
1: themselves. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, uh, and, and, and we should probably let you go, but I have a couple last questions that I like to ask guests. And the first one is, is just to give you a chance to suggest a book or maybe a movie or something um, well, that's been meaningful for you, whether it's new scholarship or something more personal. What should the listeners read this weekend?
0: I'm thinking about this. It's a very interesting question. and. And thank you for giving me some warning that you were going to ask this question <laughs> because uh, I, I had to think about it. And I guess one of the books I always assign in my courses now, remember, I am not an Ottomanist historian. I do Armenian and Caucasian history, but I'm basically a Soviet historian. Mm-hmm. And one of the books I give, and I urge all your listeners to read, is by Yevgenia Ginsberg called Journey into the Whirlwind. And Yevgenia Ginsberg was a good communist. In Stalin's uh, uh, Soviet Union, in the city of Kazan, who was arrested during the purges. And that book covers only the first year, this is the second volume too, of her imprisonment and her understanding of what's going on. And it's an extraordinary uh, uh, monument to the human spirit and to understanding and to the ability of people to go through suffering. I urge people to read Journey into the Whirlwind by...
1: It is a wonderful book. I ran across it years ago uh, as a graduate student, and it made an impression on me. And so the last question then is, what are you working on now? Uh, You'll laugh at this, but I've got three things going at once.
0: (laughs) Three book contracts that I've got to finish somehow soon. Um, Basically, at the moment, I'm working on a series of essays. Uh, called I call it Red Flag Unfurled, Russia historians, Russia and the Soviet Union. Historians, the Russian mm-hmm. Revolution and Soviet Union. For Verso Press in in London, uh, there my essays which I'm gathering together, redoing that are the way historians have looked at the Soviet Union uh, over mm-hmm. the last century. So it's a, a historiographical book, but hopefully readable and interesting to the general public and scholars. Uh, My friend Valerie Kivelson and I, as I mentioned, just finished a book, which is now uh, 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 out to the readers, uh, called um, Russia's Empires, which is the story of Russia seen through the lens of empire. So it's kind of parallels my view of of the Ottoman story, right? So it's not a story of genocide because Russians didn't carry out the genocide the way the, the, the Ottomans did. And thirdly, a book that I've been working on for more than a quarter of a century, which is largely finished, but I want to go through it one more time and then send it off to a press, uh, called tentatively Koba, Stalin and the Russian Revolution. It's the biography of Stalin from his birth uh, in Georgia through the revolutionary movement to October 1917.
1: Hmm. And. It must be a little nerve-wracking to be working on a book for 25 years and finally end it and send it off.
0: Yes, that's why it's in a drawer right now. And the, <laughs> and the others, and then go back to it. There are a lot of Stalin biographies out there uh, that have just come out. And, and so the, the, the world may be saturated with too much Stalin. But this book is unique since I learned Georgian and uh, studied in the wow. Georgian archive and, and, and waited till the Soviet Union fell apart before I actually try to complete the book. So it's, it's, it'll be pretty fundamental, I think. And uh, I'll look forward to its reception. And hopefully it'll also be read more
1: generally. Well, I hope so. And I hope this book is, 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 is read as well. It's, it's a wonderful book, and I learned a lot. Um, and I hope that the listeners go out and, 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 and buy the book or get it from the library and, and, and read it. Um, but I want to thank you again for your time. Thank you so much, and I hope sometime later on we'll have a chance to chat on the show again.
0: Thank you, Feli. You're a great interviewer, and I really appreciated your appreciation of my book. Excellent. We'll take care. Okay, bye-bye.
1: you have been listening to an interview with Ron Suni, author of They Can Live in the Desert But Nowhere Else, A History of the Armenian Genocide. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. Next time, I'll talk with Timothy Snyder about his new book about the Holocaust, titled Black Earth, The Holocaust as History and Warning. Until then, thanks for the download, and have a great one.